This is Paula Morell, and welcome to Tales from the South, presented by bourbonandboots.com. How's everybody doing tonight? All right, well, welcome to Tales from the South, where Southerners bring their own true stories to life. We are on location at South on Main in downtown Little Rock, Arkansas. Tales from the South is presented by our parent company, Southern Lifestyle Brand, bourbonandboots.com. And I'm your host, Paula Martin Morell. All right, are y'all ready for some Southern style storytelling? <laughs> Southern writer and reluctant New Englander, Don Shand, grew up in Alabama's Black Belt and attended Selma's public schools during their first two decades of integration. Since then, she has lived and worked in Nice, London, and Boston. Her work has appeared in Thicket, the 1966 Journal, and the anthology Children of a Changing South. Her work is forthcoming in the Kenyan Review and Southern Cultures. She co-founded the Tannery Series in Boston, which brings the nation's most intriguing writers to the live stage. Under her leadership, it hosted Sharon Olds, Robert Pinsky, and Paul Harding, alongside up-and-coming writers working in experimental forms. Dawn began her career in the first management consulting firm to go public on NASDAQ. She has published extensively in business and technology trade magazines, including Harvard Business Review. She holds an MFA from Emerson College, a master's in international studies from the European Institute in Nice, France, and a BA in economics and French from the University of Alabama. Dawn now lives in Newburyport, Massachusetts, and happily returns home to the South whenever possible. Tonight, Dawn takes us to Alabama and a drinking story that changed everything in an unlikely cocktail, Alabama, alcohol, and mama. Ladies and gentlemen, Dawn Shand. It is such a pleasure to be with your, you here tonight to tell a drinking story. It's also surprising when I think of it. Growing up in rural Alabama in the 70s and 80s, I didn't see anyone drink in public until I was 17 and in a foreign country. So to be in the South at a venue with a bar whose spirits include Dickel, Mezcal, Aperol, Genepi des Alpes, it's remarkable, really. Now, my parents were observant Southern Baptists, a faith which has maintained its adamant opposition to consuming alcohol into this century. In this world, alcohol functions much like the proverbial apple. One taste could lead you down the path of temptation. <laughs> my mother did, however, have one college drinking story. She and a group of students attended a dinner party at a professor's home and at the end of a particularly heavy meal, he offered my mother a sip of creme de menthe 
to aid the digestion. <laughs> now, to be fair, the state of Alabama runs on this kind of virtuousness. In the face of public scandal, of which there is a great deal, I often hear people say, why can't they just do right? Or why don't they just use common sense? Alabamians are great believers in virtue and common sense, which grease the wheels of their civic life. But I've learned that when any one place demands this much public rectitude, that somewhere out of sight, some very creative sinning is going on. <laughs> so my first inkling into this relationship between public virtue and private vice came as a student at the University of Alabama, which had quite a cocktail culture. Boys hid Ziploc baggies filled with bourbon beneath their shirts and snuck their contraband into the football stadium, where alcohol was, of course, prohibited. A local bar served a shot called the Pink Panty Pulldown, <laughs> which you could get for free if you were willing to disrobe and prove you had on pink underwear. <laughs> and then there was my personal favorite, the Harry's Crazy Bucket, a proprietary blend of white liquors, Coca-Cola, and grenadine mixed and served in a gallon paint can. The bartenders would even tap the lid on it, put it in a paper bag, and let you take your bucket to go. No, after college, I moved away from Alabama and slowly began to notice a certain thawing in my parents' relationship to alcohol, if not each other. My mother called one day and said, Dawn, your father is a wino. A home-brewed bottle of muscadine wine had arrived as a gift, which my father poured into a Tupperware container in the refrigerator and dipped from nightly. It was real good, he said. Another time, my father called to tell me he had been in Uniontown in the middle of the day doing some banking when a man tried to sell him a Dixie cup of moonshine for a dollar while standing on the town's main thoroughfare. He didn't sample, but alcohol, at least in their telling, was becoming funnier to them. This didn't mean alcohol couldn't make them anxious. Even when I got married, they argued they could not serve it because someone might get drunk, wreck a car, sue them, and take their farm. The, <laughs> the public spectacle of alcohol still put them on edge. So I thought, maybe this is where we'll end up. A private sip of muscadine wine is okay, but never a full glass at the table. But something did change. A few years ago, they were attending the same Baptist church where my father was a deacon, as had been his father. This arrangement was unusual for them. My parents' long marriage has succeeded in part because they could each go to a separate house on separate plots of land, separated by a county. <laughs> my mother enjoyed socializing with many of the women in the congregation who were not only lovely people, but terrific cooks. And one of their ongoing projects was the making of their own vanilla extract. <laughs> You've done this? <laughs> it requires steeping a vanilla bean pod in a bottle of vodka for several months. 
the ladies were traveling across county lines to buy their vodka because they didn't want to be caught by their preacher in the act of its purchase. <laughs> My mother had already crossed paths with this preacher. One day, she had collected the offering at church, and the preacher said, you know, that's just not done in certain congregations. Only deacons are allowed to take up the offering. Deacons are the lay leaders of the church, and that role has traditionally been held by men. Now, this comment infuriated my mother, who knew full well that the ladies of the church were putting their paychecks in the offering plate, then counting the money in the basement and deciding how it would be spent. The women of the church ran the place. So his comment ignited one righteous fury. Around this same time, the church had to rewrite its charter. And one of the many wondrous aspects of the Baptist church is that each congregation has the autonomy to write its own rules as the spirit moves it. <laughs> so my mother argued that two significant changes should be made. One, women should be allowed to collect the offering. They should be able to fully participate in all aspects of the church's leadership. And two, there should be no prohibitions against alcohol. Everyone knew they were buying their vodka for the vanilla extract projects in the next county. <laughs> to hide it defied common sense. Now my father, who tends his roses and cows and prefers never to leave that patch of earth he owns, was swept up into this debate as deacon, he argued before the men of the church, whom he'd known his whole life, that these prohibitions on women's participation made his two daughters feel like second-class citizens. These were astounding stands for both of them to take. Their ideas defied not only a community and its customs, but a powerful religious institution. And keep in mind, they were both part of a generation asked to write essays in school on why segregation should continue. Growing up in the 50s outside Selma, they witnessed unspeakable injustice. That my parents stood up for all our equality when no one was looking deeply moved me. The church, however, was not. <laughs> the debate practically tore the roof off, though I think my grandparents paid for it. The church refused to budge. My mother, however, having lit this signal fire, was transformed by it. She decided she had had enough. And after 60 years of membership, she left the Southern Baptist Church. After some searching, she decided to become a member of the Episcopal Communion. She began learning about its many traditions and mysteries, the Book of Common Prayers, transubstantiation, and as our whole family discovered at her Easter Day baptism, that both a rosé and a white can accompany those bland casseroles made with Campbell's cream of chicken soup <laughs> that are a staple of the Episcopal Church buffet. So a crisis of faith led her to St. Paul's, but it was the congregation's socializing that caused my mother to announce at the age of 67 that she needed to find a kind of wine she would enjoy at their parties. Now, if she were here, and she would not approve of this story, she would argue that a glass of wine, like that sip of creme de menthe taken 50 years ago, is merely an aid to the digestion. 
and her arguments about women's participation in the church and the prohibitions against alcohol were plain common sense. And I wouldn't disagree. This story isn't about alcohol, but about conviction, the ability to stand in place and defy it and be changed by the consequences for the better. So I'd like to offer not so much an ending to this tale, but a toast to my mother's kind of spirit. May all our cups runneth over. Thank you. <laughs> I'd just like to say that I'm here tonight with my uncle and my aunt. <laughs> so my mother's younger brother is here. And uh, <laughs> uh, and so, it's, so I'm a from, basically, I'm not from a family of writers, but I am from a family of legendary storytellers and uh, maverick women. My aunt is also here. She was the state of Arkansas's first female ordained Southern Baptist minister. So. <laughs> so thank you so much, Dawn Shan, for being on Tales from the South, presented by bourbonandboots.com. <laughs> thank you. In your story, you say that you didn't see anyone drink in public until you were 17 and in a foreign country. So I'm curious, was this the first time you drank alcohol when you were <laughs> overseas? And, did, and do you have other stories about being a Southerner abroad? <laughs> well, I do believe there were a few surreptitious sips of beer in high school. However, the first time I really had a, a drink was, oddly enough, um, in Paris, France. And I had an Americano, um, <laughs> which is this beautiful sugar-rimmed drink. Um, and we were at the Trocadero, and I was with my French teacher, who was an Episcopal, and therefore should not have told the story she did. But she started talking about a movie that she had seen with Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine, where Shirley MacLaine becomes a drunk because he starts her by drinking Americanos. <laughs> so, so it was impossible to know if I was enjoying myself or not, or on the path to temptation. <laughs> And so in your story, I love the line where you say, when any one place demands this much pu public rectitude, that somewhere out of sight, some very creative sinning is going on. <laughs> That's a great line. So can you tell us some other stories from Alabama that illustrate this idea? <laughs> is there anyone else here from Alabama besides my family? <laughs> um, well. You know, if you're watching the news, you know that the governor of Alabama is embroiled in a sex scandal. And I don't know if you've heard the tapes, but uh, my reaction was that they made me want to go immediately to bed with a morally ambiguous novel <laughs> full of ambiguity. They were the worst, it was the worst pillow talk I've ever heard. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, Alabama is really a wondrous state, <laughs> um, and its politics are, are quite um, astounding. <laughs> and we, we've had a little bit of that here in Arkansas, too, so we kind of we understand where you're coming from. So you say you're a reluctant New Englander, 
and that you love coming home to the South. So how has your trip to back to the South and, and to Little Rock in particular been so far? And do you have any stories to share since you've been here? Well, I have so enjoyed this. This is my first trip to Little Rock. Uh, last night, I decided to go out uh, and enjoy the weather. And uh, I stopped at a restaurant with an outdoor cafe. And to my right were two women with two dogs. And to my left were a group of uh, people who had been well served. And one of them um, <laughs> wandered over and starts chatting and says, uh, you mind if I pet your dogs? <laughs> and then he says, um, can I ask you a question? Like, why, why do they have this harness on them? And the lady says, uh, they're seeing eye dogs. <laughs> we are both blind. <laughs> and he says, well, I feel like an asshole. <laughs> and the second woman says, well, that's all right. You don't look like one. <laughs> so hard I had to leave <laughs> and go eat at the flying fish. <laughs> There's always a story, right? <laughs> All right, so we have a few minutes here at the end for audience questions. So if you have a question for Dawn that you would like to ask um, and she's willing to answer, you can ask uh, <laughs> anything you like about her story or about her writing or about living, uh, living out of the South. Um, and we have a cordless microphone, so if you'll hold up your hand um, and let us get to you before you ask the question so we can capture it for the radio portion. What's the biggest difference between living, did you say in Massachusetts, is yeah. that where you are? What's the difference in people there versus the South? I know it's huge. <laughs> uh, well, let's just take for an example the two ladies and their seeing eye dogs. Uh, if that had happened in Massachusetts, it would have gone, can I touch your dog? No. <laughs> uh, uh, I have to admit, I, uh, as a rule, Mass people in Massachusetts do not have fun on Monday nights. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I, you know, I think the main difference to me is that uh, there's an attentive, attentiveness to language on an everyday basis in the South, and a real emphasis on story. Like, particularly in Alabama, I notice uh, you can't just arrive at work and be ready for work. You better be ready with a story. Uh, my, I have an uncle who, uh, who tells outrageous stories. Uh, and he tells a story about uh, going to work one day and driving along a certain road and seeing a dead alligator in the road and thinking to himself, that's the kind of thing I need at work. <laughs> uh, so, he, so he takes a dead alligator to work with him. Um, and he walks in and says to someone, uh, I need a construction size garbage bag. And his friend says, what, what you need that for? Uh, because clearly there's some suspicion already. He was a terrible prankster. And uh, he puts his dead alligator in the bag, uh, takes it into the break room, and stores it underneath his chair. <laughs> and they're sitting around uh, at work. And someone says, what you got in that bag? <laughs> And he takes the dead alligator out, puts his hand underneath the jaw so that it drops wide open and throws the alligator into his face. <laughs> and the man like falls over, <laughs> cussing. And he says, 
he called me everything but my mother's child. <laughs> so, like, uh, that doesn't happen in Boston. <laughs> All right, I think we had a question at the bar. Uh, my question is uh, because you mentioned the University of Alabama and going to football games, and I just have to know what's it like to be in Razorback territory. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Paula did say that y'all might call the hogs for me. She's okay, just so you know, she's never heard anybody call the hogs. So I said, well, you might just be able to hear that tonight since you went to Alabama. If I, if I talk enough smack about football, will you do it? <laughs> Is anybody willing to start it? to stay. I'm ready to stay. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have to go back to Newburyport. <laughs> All right, do we, I think we have time for one more question. Does anyone else have a question for Dawn? We're the parents of a daughter that's about to study abroad, and she's homegrown Arkansan, so <laughs> any advice for her as she goes abroad for a semester to study? <laughs> Where is she going? London. Oh, uh, you know, there's, I think Europeans love Southerners. Um, you know, they're just fascinated by this, this part of the country. And I think for many reasons, uh, one, there's a sense of um, like curiosity and openness that comes with being Southern, I think is really charming. Uh, and there's also, the, there are interesting cultural similarities. Uh, they're all regions that have suffered defeat in wars and have similar um, experiences with social upheaval and dramatic change. So, you know, I, I loved being in France. I, um, I did my graduate work in France and you know, it was just a remarkable experience. Um, at the time, um, there were still many people alive who remembered World War II and they would remember American soldiers liberating their town and they would, they would come up to me and tell these remarkable stories. Um, I don't know if that will still be the case, but she'll love it and you'll have to go visit. <laughs> so how about our story and storyteller tonight? Thank you so much, Dawn Shan, for being on Tales from the South, presented by bourbonandboots.com. Tales from the South is presented by Southern lifestyle brand, bourbonandboots.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Stitcher Smart Radio. You can download and listen to our podcast on our website. More can be found at talesfromthesouth.com. Have a great night, and we'll see you next time for another edition of Bourbon and Boots Tales from the South. Good night, everybody.
jump on back Look me up When you come back to town Thank you. 